Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have to be in your house this morning, Lord. Thank you for the ability that we have to worship you, to sing to you, to pray to you, to come to you with all that we have, all of our flaws, all of our weaknesses, that you will accept us no matter what. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I came across recently a list of facts. And, and many of the facts I didn't know, and they may be facts that many of you didn't know. For example, why do men's clothes have buttons on the right-hand side, while women's clothes have their buttons on the left-hand side? Maybe you hadn't even ever noticed that. Maybe some of you are looking down at your shirts right now and saying, wait a minute, is that right? I remember as a kid, I remember looking, seeing that for the first time, and as a kid, how what I thought it was was so that you could tell whether it was a men's clothes or women's clothes. That's why I thought they were there, so that you could make sure that you weren't wear, accidentally wearing women's clothing so that you knew which side the, the buttons were on. But it turns out the reason the buttons is because the reason buttons were invented, they were expensive and were worn primarily by the rich people. And since most people were right-handed, it was easier to push buttons on the right through holes on the left. And because wealthy women were dressed by maids, dressmakers put the buttons on the maids' right. And that's where women's buttons have remained ever since. Here's another one. Why do X's? at the end of a letter or an email or a text message, signify a kiss. It's because in the Middle Ages, when many people couldn't read or write, documents were often signed with the letter X. Kissing the X then represented an oath to fulfill the obligations spelled out in that document. The X and the kiss eventually became synonymous. Do you know why people clink their glasses before drinking a toast? It's because earlier times, it was, it was sometimes common for someone to try and kill an enemy by offering them a poisoned drink. So to prove to a guest that a drink was safe, it became customary that a guest would pour just a small amount of their drink into the drink of the host, and then they would drink them simultaneously. But when a guest trusted the host, he would touch or clink his glass to the host and signify that he trusted them into a drink and not pour some of his drink into the host drink. Do you know why people in the public eye are said to be in the limelight? Limelight, invented in 1825, was used in lighthouses and theaters by burning a cylinder of lime, which produced a brilliant light. So a performer in the limelight was the center of attention. It was a pretty fun list to go through, but I've got a question of my own. Why don't more people get involved? 
Why don't more people invest in doing something significant, something meaningful with their life? Because if you ask people, they would say that they want to do something important with their life. They really want a life of significance. They want to make a difference with their life. I mean, you'd say that about yourself. I say that about myself. I've, I've never met a single person who would say, you know what? I want to permanently be on the sidelines. I don't want anyone to remember me. I, after I'm done and gone, I don't want to live a life that anyone would remember anything that I've ever done. I want to leave this world in a worse condition than when I came into the world. I've never met anyone who said, I enjoy seeing met needs go unmet. I enjoy seeing people in a crisis. I enjoy seeing children hungry, the homeless being in poverty. I enjoy seeing that. I've, I've never met a person say that. I've never met a person who would say, I enjoy being able to do something for God, but then purposely choose not to. Nobody says those types of things. We all want to serve, and we want to make a difference with our lives. But so many times, we don't. Why is that? Why don't we make a difference? It's because, as Sean Stevenson once wrote, we never get off of our butts. And no, I'm not talking about the butts with two T's. I'm talking about the butts with one T. It's, it's the butts of our fear but what if I fail? The butts of our insecurities, but what if I'm not good enough? The butts of our ignorance, but I don't know where and I don't know how. It's the butts of our self-assessments, but I don't have anything to offer. It's the butts of our excuses, but I don't have the time. We have a lot of butts that we say all the time and the fact of the matter is we need to get off of and stop using those butts and that's what this series is going to tackle getting off of our butts and living the life that we most desire the kind of uh, it's kind of like a journey that it would take to be a successful football team if you play football you play to win to get into the playoffs, to make it to the Super Bowl, why else would you play but to win? But there are a lot of players who don't do what it takes to win. I'll never forget reading something that Tom Landry once said, and I know there are a lot of Dallas Cowboy fans and a lot of non-Dallas Cowboy fans out there, but Hall of Fame coach Tom Landry said this of the Cowboys. He said, his job was to get a group of men to do what they don't want to do so that they can achieve the one thing that they have wanted all of their lives. And that's what I'm going to try to do over the next few weeks. I'm going to challenge you, each and every one of you, to do what you don't 
want to do so that you can achieve the life that you have always wanted to achieve. Because sitting on your butts, you're sitting there for a reason. You like it there. You think it's easier and it's best there, but the fact of the matter is, it's not. So we, I want to begin with a case study of a man who got off of his butt and was glad that he did. A man was one of the early followers of Jesus. But let me first begin with a little background on the Jesus that he followed. See, the life of Jesus was the most consequential in all of human history in terms of shaping human thought and action. So what was it that marked Jesus's life? There's obviously a lot of answers you could give to that question. You could say that he was the only one who ever lived a perfect and sinless life, and that would be true. You could say that he was a teacher beyond compare and also would be true. You could talk about his ability to perform miracles, about his death followed by a resurrection. Like I said, there are a lot of answers that you could give to that question. But what's often overlooked is how his life was marked by something that few ever take note of. His life was marked by servanthood. He wanted it to mark that of his followers, too. Let me take you back to one scene in particular that highlights this. Jesus had handpicked 12 men to be by his side, to be mentored and developed for the unleashing of his revolution on the planet through the building of his church. These 12 were his inner circle. But what did they start to do almost immediately? They began jockeying for position. They started whispering amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest. Who was going to be the biggest, the best, the most well-known? Who was going to be the most successful? And how did that play out with Jesus? Well, let me read you what happened. We find it in Mark chapter 9. He says, After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down and called the 12 over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. But they didn't get it. Later, when the same issue reared its ugly head again, Jesus put it to them just a little bit more plainly. This time he said, whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Then, using one of his favorite titles for himself, the Son of Man, a name that reflected both his divinity and his humanity, that he was a son of God in human form, Jesus told them this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. 
the key to the greatest, most impactful life that has ever been lived was servanthood, was serving others. And that's supposed to be an example for each and every one of us. So let's look at a life of a person who bought into exactly what Jesus said. His name was Joseph. He was a businessman. We don't know a lot about his business dealings, but we do know that at least some of them involved real estate. And he seemed successful. But then he encountered Jesus, and it, and it rocked his world, changed his entire mindset. It introduced something radical into his thinking, the power of a servant's heart, of a servant's mentality. Just the raw impact and life change of serving. And it captivated him, and he became a follower of Jesus. And as Jesus' follower, he saw that entire drama surrounding Jesus play out. The miracles, the healings, the teachings, the crowds, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and then on the third day, the empty tomb. And then this thing called the church that Jesus came to establish was birthed. Joseph knew that it was time, that it was time for those who followed Jesus to do exactly what they should, what he said, what Jesus said they should do, to become a servant and to emulate the life that Jesus had lived while he is here. Let me read you where, jo where Joseph first enters the biblical narrative. And the believers were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord, and God's blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land for, or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. It was a time of great expectation and enthusiasm in the early church. God was working, people were responding to the message, and there was great growth. But it was also a time of great anxiety and great need. How would they make it? How would they survive? With this thing called the church that Jesus said he came to establish, would it even get off the ground? Then Joseph sold his field. He established a spirit for the entire community by selflessly selling some of what he owned and giving the money to what the church was trying to do and to be, both in terms of its mission to reach those around them and to care for the needs of the poor within them. It had such an impact that he was never known as Joseph again. Instead, he became known 
as Barnabas, the great encourager, the one who brought hope, confidence, courage to them all through his selfless act of service. The fact that his gift was singled out tells us that it was probably a sizable gift, a game-changing gift. It may well have single-handedly ensured the survival and the vibrancy of that early church. It may have allowed them to break through those barriers of reaching people for Jesus. Every other reference to Joseph in the Bible from this point forward doesn't say Joseph, but always refers to him by his nickname, Barnabas the Encourager. You see, that was the impact of following Jesus into a life of servanthood had on one man. But it, but it wasn't a single act for Barnabas. It wasn't even just a season. It was a way of life. Let me turn to another scene from his life. The news of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead was spreading. People were becoming followers of Jesus left and right, even in places where there were no churches, much, much less pastors. The news about Jesus was spreading like wildfire, and, and people were embracing the Christian faith. You could say that it was going viral. One, one of those places was a city named Antioch. The church in Jerusalem heard that a large number of people in Antioch had become Christ followers and that God was doing remarkable things in their midst. But the Christians in Antioch were a team without a coach. They were a group without a leader. So what happens next? When the church in Jerusalem got wind of this, they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check on things. As soon as he arrived, he saw that God was behind and in it all. He threw himself in with them, got behind them, urging them to stay with it for the rest of their lives. He was a good man that way, enthusiastic and confident in the Holy Spirit's ways. The community grew large and strong in the Master. Barnabas, was there a whole year meeting with the church and teaching a lot of people. It was in Antioch that the disciples were for the first time called Christians. There was a need to encourage a new group of believers. For them to be served at their greatest point of need and they sent Barnabas. Now, they didn't force him. They didn't command him to go. Instead, there, the need was seen, and he raised his hand and said, send me. He said yes to the need, yes to the challenge, and he threw himself into it for what ended up being an entire year of his life, relocating there, living there, doing life there, teaching and mentoring, leading and investing, serving in any way that he could. Why? Because he had already tasted 
what, that, what the Jesus life of serving others instead of being served was like. He knew firsthand what serving through giving had already done in his life. It had changed his life, and it had changed the lives of others. So when the opportunity came to do more, it was an automatic decision for Barnabas. He knew that's, that that is where his life would be most alive and would make the biggest difference. And once again, just like when he sold that field, his his he was right in his assessment. It made an impact. In fact, it made for another name change. Did you catch it? The impact of his service was so significant that it resulted in the people of that city calling that group of believers Christians, which means little Christ. The term had never before been used of anyone before that time. Because of Barnabas' investment, the lives of people were becoming so transformed into the life that Jesus lived that the only thing people knew to call them was little Christs, Christians. People who authentically follow Jesus are still called that 2,000 years later because of a man named Barnabas who lived like Jesus had asked each and every one of us to live. Not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives away for others. Barnabas did so much more than that. He invested in serving a young man named John Mark, who almost left the ministry out of discouragement. John Mark, the same one who wrote one of those biographies of Jesus, the book, The Gospel of Mark, Barnabas' willingness to serve set up the early church to do what it did, to explode throughout the world. In 100 A.D., about 70 years after Jesus' death, there was about 7,500 followers of Jesus. 200 years later, by the mid-300s, there were more than 30 million followers of Jesus. And today, it's the world's largest faith. So why aren't more of us living like this? Why aren't more of us making a difference in this world by serving? Why aren't we seeing the connection of a life of significance and a life that serves? The answer is we haven't gotten off of our butts. The two butts that Barnabas could have sat on would have would have absolutely ensured that he would have never made a difference in his life. The two buts that would have kept him out of the Bible, the two buts that would have guaranteed that he would have always been just Joseph and never Barnabas. The two buts that arguably would have removed the term Christian from our, our vocabulary are these. But I don't have the money but I don't have the time. 
He could have sat on those two bucks, and no one would have thought less of him. He could have easily made a case as to why it was financially irresponsible to sell any of his real estate holdings, part with any of his investments, and take anything out of his savings or to, do, or to make do with any less of his salary. If he was already a consistent giver, he could have easily said, hey, I do my part. Why should doing more fall on me? Let, let someone else step up a little bit more. Have you ever thought that? If he wasn't giving much of anything, he could have said, you know, well, money's tight right now. I can barely live off of what I have. I need it more than they do. Have you ever thought of that? When it came to his time, he could have easily said, don't look at me. I work full-time. I have a wife, kids, soccer games, yard work. I mean, if I have an extra hour or two in my week, I need it for me. He could have said, I did my part. I paid my dues. My season is over. Let someone else do the heavy lifting now. He could have said, sure, I'm going to serve. Just, just not now. I need to wait for this season when my kids are in diapers to be over. He could have said, I need to wait for this season when my kids are, are, are busy in activities. I need that season to be over. When they're done in school, I'll get active. When they're done in school, then, then I'll get active. When I finish putting them through college, you know, when I retire, I'll have a lot of time once I retire. There are a lot of seasons out there that we use as excuses. We will never get off of our butts because our butts are real to us. We've convinced ourselves that they're more important than the importance of serving. We've made rationalizations. We've rationalized all of these excuses but I don't have time. But I don't have the money. But someone else can do it. Someone else is more talented to do it. Problem is that, that we don't realize and all that we think prevents us from serving, that we are choking the life out of our own lives. Our butts are emptying our lives of greatness and worth, meaning, and significance. By sitting on our butts, we really are sacrificing the life that we say we long for. The one we were created for. The one that we are called to live. Jesus said it. Whoever wants to be great, must be a servant. Why? Because that's how you achieve greatness. Now, some of you may be thinking, I know what he's up there doing. It's nominating committee time. He's up there trying to guilt us into things. Maybe a little. 
Not really. See, I don't want anything from you. I do want something for you. I want a church where everyone is involved in ministry. Everyone. No matter what's going on in your life, there is ministry that you should and can be and need to be involved in. Whatever it is, wherever your talents are, you need to be involved. You can serve online, website, graphic design, social media, community service. You can serve our community. You can visit the elderly at a nursing home. You can serve here at our weekend services. You, all these people up here serving, back in the sound booth, out during breakfast and lunch, they're all volunteers. They're not getting paid. No one here gets paid. We're all volunteers, and if we all said, you know what, someone else can do it, this church would end. If all of us who are volunteers said, let someone else do it, this church would cease to exist. This church can only grow, can only reach more people by each and every one of us stepping up. Stepping up into roles to serve as volunteers. To serve in children's ministry. To serve as greeters. To serve in breakfast and lunch. Even if it's just one hour once a month. Or even if it's just to sell a field or two. Or maybe to take that, the servanthood inherent in supporting the cause of Christ. Through the church in which you're a part of. No matter what the amount might be. But it is time. It is time for each and every one of us to get off of our butts and to experience the life that we say we want. A life of significance. No matter what it is you do, no matter how small it might be, God will use it. He will use it to bless you and he will use it to bless this church and this community. All we have to do is get off of our butts. Heavenly Father, thank you that, that you challenge us to, to not be served, but to serve others. Heavenly Father, help us to accept that challenge. Help us to accept the challenge that in order to live a life of significance, we must be willing to serve you and to serve others. Lord, help this church, help those who are here to see that need, to see the needs all around us. And like Barnabas, to sell a field, to volunteer, and to make a difference in the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.